You're listening to Booth One. Frank, I, I have something to, to tell you. You do? Happy anniversary, happy anniversary, happy anniversary, uh-huh. happy anniversary. Uh-huh. It's our fifth year anniversary today. Yikes. Wow. Yeah. It's only about my second-ish or third or so. Oh, at least three. Yeah. I, mean, I came in came in later, but happy fifth for you. Well, thank you. It's mm-hmm. It's been quite the run. Uh, I, I never thought we'd make it quite this far. This is episode number 105. Huh. Because it's our anniversary, I got you a traditional gift for the fifth year anniversary. Oh, wow. What is that? It's wood. Wood? Okay. I I got you this number two pencil. Oh, wow. Uh, I didn't sharpen it because I I figured that if you didn't like it, you might stab me with it. (laughs) I can always return it. We can can sharpen it afterwards if (laughs) you want to use it. Oh, that's lovely. I didn't get you a gift, but thank you very much. I use pencils, you know. Uh, I know that. (laughs) You've mentioned that before on the air. (laughs) I know you've been busy. That's why you haven't gotten me a a lovely gift. Correct. That's exactly Um, it. But you've been out and about in the world uh, judging the state speech competition. I have, yeah. The Illinois High School Association Series. We talk about this every, well, late winter, spring Mm -hmm. time. February. uh, When it happens. Uh, How's it been going? You did the state just, just this past weekend, yeah. But I did all three. It starts at the regional, and then the students who qualify for the sectional go on, and then the students who qualify for state go on from there. These are all high school students. High school students, and they're doing poetry. They're reading prose. They're doing duet acting scenes. They're doing informative speeches. They're doing oratory, like persuasive speeches, impromptu, extemp. There's like 15 different events. I coached the high school back in the day and did all of that and had quite a bit of success. So they asked me to come back and judge. And it's very nice because to see these young people, particularly this past weekend at State, it was in Peoria, judging even the preliminary rounds are wonderful. But the final rounds are like, how on earth am I supposed to judge this? I had seven people in dramatic interp, and I, each one was like unbelievably good. And it was just painful to write a seven because you rank them one through seven because you have to have a state champion. Right, right. Well, ra- somebody's got to win. Somebody's got to win. You know, it's always up. and uh, and but we were all up and down. People got ones and sevens and four. I mean, because everyone was wonderful, so it was inspiring to see people do this. To see young people still at it, just like I did when I was in high school and when I coached it. And, what was uh, your favorite dramatic interp? What did you vote for? Do you remember what you voted for number one? I do, I do. He ended up third, I think. It was about this young man and his wife had gotten married, and then they're involved in this car crash, and doesn't end well. And he just has this incredible dramatic moment. The, the control these kids showed was just amazing. Yeah. I don't know if they plan on going into acting, but they were just wonderful. So dramatic interp is not necessarily a theatrical script. It can be. It can be, but it, can it be doesn't a, have to be. No, it can it, be a it, cutting from a novel or uh, something well, like that. Yeah, if, it's, if, it's, if you're cutting it from a novel, probably you would go into prose, but it usually is a dramatic monologue, kind of from a play, or it really can be taken from any source. In his case, he was the father talking about this experience. I see. So it was just kind of one monologue, and 
and he may have had a line or two with the wife would chime in, but he was wonderful. And then the girl who plays second was doing something from 700 Sundays by Billy Crystal about this mother, this Jewish mother, and their daughter decided she was going to marry her girlfriend, and the father was having none of it, and it was very moving. It was really great. So all of them were wonderful. Well, it sounds like you had a, a rewarding and emotional experience. Yeah, I did. I did. And then next is the Illinois High School Association Drama and Group Interp. That's what's next. Um, well, I'll be doing judging full length play, not full length, 40 minute cuttings, but fully blown plays with sets and costumes and all the rest of it. Sorry, that was the cat yes, interrupting the cat you there. Yes, the cat was fascinated by my story. I had to so get she her had off a... the table because that was <laughs> it was close to catastrophe here. Yeah, but, yeah. Well, that's fantastic, yeah, Frank. I, I'm always I so I'm always so pleased to hear about what you're mm-hmm. doing with these, and you're so passionate and dedicated to really listening to these students mm-hmm. and watching their work. That's a and pleasure. Praising Usually, them. it's yeah. a pleasure. Yeah. So you think that the world of young actors is in good hands we have a good slew of them especially well state of illinois here in illinois we do have actors and orators and the students really learn all kinds of skills in terms of poise and in terms of critical thinking and it's just a terrific yeah uh, terrific activity glad to hear the update thank Mm you well we've been waiting to have our guest today Mm -hmm. on the program for quite some time he is a don't don't laugh, Brian. It's true. I'm, I'm I'm serious. He's a multi-talented individual with a dynamic personality to match. Please welcome everyone to the booth, Brian Arzell. Hey, Brian. Hey, how's it going? Hey, it's going great. <laughs> Let me tell the folks a little bit about you, and okay. then you can fill in the blanks. <laughs> All right, right? Brian Arzell, mm-hmm. and that's A R Z E L L. Frank mm-hmm. <laughs> has experience in theater, film, voiceover, and vocal performance also a dancer and choreographer which is how we really know your work mm-hmm. i think i've seen five or six of your shows in the last year there are a lot of options so yeah <laughs> you can always come up with choreographer of hip-hop modern jazz contemporary and lyrical what's lyrical dance how would you describe lyrical dance um lyrical for me is very story-based well a lot of my choreography in general is very story-based but um it really is about the words of the music uh, as the the forum suggests lyrical because it's about the lyrics, yeah. right? So uh, it's basically an extension or an exploration of the words that are being said along with the the musical orchestration as uh, well. So, I see. Mm-hmm. With his positive personality, and I'm quoting from your website here, <laughs> with his positive personality and effervescent nature, one of my favorite Ooh. words, yeah. effervescent <laughs> nature, he is continuously training and improving his craft. Brian started training as an actor at 14, Yes. Yeah, virtually a child star. <laughs> yeah, my first professional acting gig, so to speak, was when I was 14, when I was a sophomore in high school. With uh, the Mosaic Youth Theater of Detroit. Yes. Right? You're a Detroit native. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he started working as a professional actor at 15. <laughs> wow. Now, did your high school have any kind of program? Or did they did, but it was quite bad. So you had to go go elsewhere. Like yeah, it was my. I loved my high school. I was one of. um, I was in a the number one high school, number one public high school in Detroit. It's a one of our. Detroit has tested high schools. I'm sure like most cities do, but it's a. You had to test and to be accepted. Okay. Because although it's a public school, it was one of the tested high schools. The school I went to at that time only had about 800 students total. The school, the students were amazing at various things. 
drama was just <laughs> not one of those things. Like we not were, the strong yeah, shit, yeah, it was great mm. because we were like number one in band, and our dance program was number one. And you probably didn't have the teacher or coach or director to. Yeah, do it. it was weird how that was like the missing gap because we also because we have in Detroit there is a Detroit High School for Fine and Performing Arts as uh-huh. well. Uh-huh. It was funny how we still excelled very highly in like band dance the other jazz arts. music and yeah. all the other performing arts for, for some reason like acting was just like mm-hmm. the missing one because I would probably say because majority of the ones that were serious about acting in particular did go to the high school for mm-hmm. fine and performing arts and others like myself just sought it in other places because I went to a program that was outside of my high school mm-hmm. that was just a it was a citywide public youth professional program so okay. um that met like three days a week after school and then on on weekends detroit is uh, a little bit like chicago as well as far as like how spread out it is but detroit doesn't have the public transit that chicago has no so no, it, it took it, it will always it was a it was a trek okay. <laughs> to get to those rehearsals sure. especially like for myself because i did it on my own because my mom worked midnights and and so she would often not be able to take me from, or I'll be going from school to, because she had to sleep because yeah. she had to go to work at 11 p.m. So she was always asleep when I had to go to rehearsal at six. So I made my way to those rehearsals or carpools and things like that. So, uh-huh. well, yeah. you eventually continued to study acting at Miami University of Ohio. I did. Go Red Hawks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And received a uh, Bachelor of Arts in Theater. You returned to Detroit as a director, choreographer, acting teacher, and dance instructor. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your efforts and performances have taken you all over the United States, Italy and Germany, as well as Canada, England, Wales, France, Denmark, Singapore, and Malaysia. Frank, it sounds like some of your vacation (laughs) destinations. (laughs) You've been to almost all those places. You've been to almost all those places. It's true what Shakespeare said. Again, this is off your website, that all the world is a stage and a class room and a studio and a battlefield <laughs> shows that I've seen your work in were uh, the total bent uh, the color purple head over heels just recently saw the new show at timeline theater called kill move paradise now when we talk about choreographers and I think you're only the second choreographer we've had on the program oh, congratulations <laughs> People usually think of, well, musicals, you know, big musicals, but that's not really all there is to it because you choreograph and do stage movement for a lot of different kinds of shows, including Mm -hmm. non-musicals, like Kill Move Paradise, which has music elements to it, but it's not a musical. I wouldn't call it that at all. No, no, not at all. Over the last year, I've choreographed a little over 20 shows. Um, in this year alone and only eight of those were musicals Mm. so the other 12 (laughs) were were plays or uh, other performance but they felt they wanted a choreographer well yeah because a lot of shows it's become like a trend not a trend but it's become more popular for a lot of shows to include movement elements because a lot of things have music in them or because I, I just believe audiences want that more as well as far as like being the having the extra stimulation from those type of shows because we all process things differently, right? And so to so have this more extra than just element, block, more than just yeah, blocking, yeah, okay. yeah. So all of the things I've done it. have been actual movement elements and not okay. just like assisting in the blocking. It, it's been really been about being an extension of the story and and going somewhere 
otherworldly or going somewhere beyond the text mm -hmm. that are a lot of things that are unspoken that we can do with movement by speaking with our bodies. So, mm -hmm. um, so that's a lot of like the work that I've been doing with these plays that have had these elements and have these things described and then uh, directors would be like, can you read this and just tell me what, what you think or do you have any ideas or do you think, do you think we even need a choreographer? Do you think we need a movement person? And I'll always be like, well, if you want to really expand this, then yes, I would say bring on a movement person. Yeah, don't talk yourself out of work, Brianna. <laughs> well, um, no, like I'm very honest yeah. as well with myself. It's like, because some things, I know my strengths and my faults and my weaknesses. And so I'll be like, yeah, I, I absolutely can do that. My first out of town gig I just did that I did in Maryland at the only theater is Miss You Like Hell with Lisa Portes, who's from Chicago, mm -hmm. because it's a very Latin-based story. It's about two, these two Latin women finding their relationship with each other and with their culture. And I was like, well, do you have any Latin choreographers in mind? Because I don't know if I'm the person to tell this story authentically. Anytime I do movement, I do research in the style and the and the origins and everything like that, because I want to be well-equipped with the knowledge of where it's coming from. So I have a good foundation of information to base my movement off of, but I'm always an advocate for people telling their own stories and that's not my story. So I was like, do you, well, you can work with this person. Do you have, you try this person, this person. And she just blatantly said, no, I'm, I want your work and your choreography. And I know that you research and you do the work to make sure that it's authentic. So that's why I want you on the project. And I was like, okay, cool, great. But, you know, I will always push for, if it's not my wheelhouse or it's not my story to tell, I will always push for the appropriate person first because I can always get there, but there's a difference between uh, living the information and learning the information. Mm. You know what I mean? I was prompted by one of your collaborators to ask you this question. How do you get your projects? And, and, and do you have a particular style of the way you talk yourself onto a show? <laughs> yeah, it has to be. I have to care about it. Like, I, I'm, I'm not a person who accepts a gig just to have for the paycheck. You know what I mean? That's never been who I was uh, or what I strive to do or my brand or my aesthetic. I always want to be moved by the piece. There has to be a purpose of why doing this piece now. I will probably never choreograph something like Mamma Mia or something like that because it's just, <laughs> one, it's not interesting to me and two, it's not adding to the global or social conversations of the things that we need to be having right now. Mm. So I would never work on that project because it doesn't move me. I want to work on things that moved me because I have worked on shows that haven't moved me and it shows. Mm -hmm. And to me, it shows that, that my heart wasn't in that work and that I was just doing it to do it. As far as like how things come to me, it's, there's a company that I want to work with or a director that I want to work with. I ask them what's coming up. Do they have any shows they're looking for people for? I'll be very forward in asking those questions because if I want to work with someone, I want to work with someone. You know, my mom always told me, closed mouths don't get fed, was what my mom always taught me. And <laughs> so she great. said, if you want something, then you need to ask for it because how yeah. else will yeah. people know? They're not yeah. going to magically think, oh, they might want to do that, you know? I mean, but the more I, you work with people, the more they know you, too. Exactly. So and that's that the been the blessing way. lately, yeah. is that it has been a lot of people getting in touch with me, like, hey, we have this thing, just read it, and are you interested in it? And I think that mode of, like, I have to be invested in it has followed me as well, because even the things that have come to me, it's never just like, come on board, it's like, read this, let me know how you feel about it, mm -hmm. or if it's, what, if, if it's something that 
you can connect with and that you, we can move forward with. I never just want to be in to do a two-step and then leave. Like, I want to be a part of the, the well, they conversation. Want, they want the best you also. Exactly. So they'll get it if they ask it in that way. Yeah, yeah. So that's sure. kind of how projects have been coming to me is just yeah. people reaching out. Choreography was never the goal <laughs> at all here in really? Chicago. It wasn't even on my radar. Like, I wow. came here as an actor, as a performer, to be in shows, to do shows. And then when the first thing I choreographed here was The Hairy Ape in 20, 2016 with Monty Cole, who is still my long-lasting collaborator that we have so many things we're working on right now. I was already cast in the show. And he put up a Facebook post like, hey, does anybody know this style of movement that I want to, I'm thinking about I wanted to include this in the show. And then I just hit him up privately like, Monty, duh. Like, what, what are you talking about? And he was like, he was like, I know, I just didn't want to ask because you're in it. And I don't yeah. know if that would be weird. I don't know if you wanted to do both. I was like, yeah, why not? Let's do it. Um, that particular style of movement was like step and body percussion. And I'm in a, a black Greek organization in a fraternity. And that's, you know, that's our style of movement that we use to express and celebrate things like that. And the role of the person that choreographs all that is called the stepmaster within the fraternity. And I was a stepmaster for my fraternity oh. for three years. And so I was like, Monty, why are you asking other people? I'm already here. And You're so, the guy. You're and, the so, guy. Yeah. and so I did it. And then right after that show, people just started contacting me asking me about being interested in choreographing different things and i was right, just like right. wait what and i was like oh i guess i can do this too um, <laughs> and so then it, uh, from then it became Brianna arzell the choreographer tell us about this new project of yours that i mentioned already kill move paradise which we saw on thursday night i assume that this is one of those kinds of projects that you were approached about and you read it and you said oh absolutely i'm i can really get into this this is yes. right in my wheelhouse how did you approach the project with director wardell julius clark and by the way i just wanted to read something that was in the the reader review the reviews are fantastic <laughs> they are. i don't know if you read reviews or not oh, yeah. <laughs> They're it's, just opinions, so I don't. It doesn't yeah. affect me anyway. It, it, it said, directed by Wardell Julius Clark, who's been a guest on this program, with brutal, beautiful, haunting choreography by Breon Arzell, yeah. Kill Move Paradise stands at the unicorn rare intersection of mesmerizing and indispensable. I would say those are words you don't often hear about uh, a play, <laughs> mm -hmm. the unicorn rare intersection. Yeah. Tell me about the choreography and the movement in this piece. What was your approach to it? it there's maybe 10 or 12 different styles going on at yes. <laughs> various different times, depending on what's happening in the plot, if there is really a plot, or what's happening on stage at any oh, particular there's a plot. time. Um, it's a world plot. It's a world we'll plot. We'll get there later. Yeah. <laughs> tell, tell me about your approach to the movement on this, on this show. When I first started out my career, I was a very much a like sit down with the things and plan it beforehand and like write everything out. But I've I've learned that th from all the work that I've been doing that I thrive in the room. And so I choreograph majority of everything I choreograph now is in the room and with the actors because I find that I like to appeal to actors strengths in who they are as artists and people opposed to trying to put something on top of them that I made up in my head and trying to make them make it look good so with this particular work it was about one what these men already offered to the table and what they thought about these pieces I, I consider 
movement, especially with things like a play, is more of a conversation between it should be a conversation between the movement choreographer and the actors because I don't have to do it every night, you know, and it needs to be something that they are one comfortable with, that they understand, that looks organic, and it actually looks like they're doing mm-hmm. it, opposed to they're trying to do something that somebody taught them. So with that, the way I approached it, I go in it with like a skeleton. I always call it a skeleton of movement or an outline. And then they have to color in all the spaces with with their emotion, with their style, with the way they do things. Because I'm much more interested, although there is a room for shows like, you know, a chorus line and, thing, and things that are very like strict and everybody has to be synchronized and look like this. I'm My style is very interested in watching real people move and real people dance because I think also that connects with audiences more because they see it themselves instead of this unattainable thing in front of them and so with that we just broke each part broke apart each element and saying okay what do we need out of this moment and what's happening around it like what does it sound like mm. what what's the mood are mm. we trying to set what is the story we're trying to tell here and then from that I just go from my heart and then just just start to move mm-hmm. and see what we could create. Now, for some of those things, and that uh, for particularly for Kill Move, there were some very specific directions within the stage direction of from the playwright saying that this is like this, oh yes, or this is like this, or this should represent this. And so, with those references, I was like, oh, got it, because there are a lot of Black American references within the text and within the stage direction of the show, and so that already created it or had a great foundation for us to this build from. This is written by James... Um, James Imes. James Imes, and that's mm. that's spelled capital I-J-A-M-E-S, like mm-hmm. I-James, but yes. the J is, <laughs> is silent. Uh-huh. So there were, there were a lot of suggestions in the script mm-hmm. about what kind of... What kind of movement each in the bigger portions, like the, the big battle and the the I TV see. the TV sitcom and those things have very like specific like this should feel like this or this should look like this or this is in this style. But there were other parts that, for example, with the, the reading of the list, that there is no the only thing there are, there are vocal interjections, but there's nothing talking about the physical in that list. But Wardell and I both. We know what that is, and we know what we feel, and what. And for that moment, I wanted to, I wanted to physicalize how it felt to hear that list and to read that list. But I wanted to make that a physical representation and not just reading it. Yeah. Tell us more about difficult. this. Tell us more about the list because I haven't really described the the story of the play. Yeah. Um, so the play focuses on four men, three men, and then a fourth. I don't want to give away too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So three men who are basically in purgatory, or not even purgatory. I don't want to say purgatory because they're kind of like in the in between, between and in uh, between. moving on, and in between the earthly plane and a celestial plane. So they're in between wherever they're going to pass to on afterwards, but they've left the earthly plane. And not to give any, this doesn't give anything away, but they are dead. Yes, they, they are. They, all, they have yes. been. They have been killed. In a violent way through police brutality. Yes. These three characters. And we that find we that out meet. early on. We find yeah. that out okay. very early on. Okay. And, and they find it out as yeah. they're there. As, yeah, exactly. Uh, they, they arrive there, but they don't know that's what happened. And because yeah. and it's a whole moment of like having to remember, which, right. is, which is a beautiful thing for the playwright, too, because it's just saying like how you can't 
we can't move on. And this is a, for me, it's a commentary on society in general. We can't move on until we remember and accept the atrocities and the bad things that have happened. Mm. We can't only accept the good. There's no way to grow and move on from that. We have to look back and say, this has happened. It is a fact. There is racism. It still exists. There are unlawful killings and uh, there's many, uh, there are many injustices in the world. They still exist. But as long as we keep going, no, it does, it's not that bad. As long as we do that, we're cutting off, we're disrespecting our history, we're disrespecting our ancestors, we're disrespecting the, the growth and the forward momentum that we could we're disrespecting the potential that we have to to move forward. Mm-hmm. And so with that show, by having that us witness them having to remember before they can move forward is te- is tell and telling us as an audience, as a society, as a people, we have to remember and we have to acknowledge it and accept it before we can move forward. And there's a moment in the show, well, a long, long moment that you were just describing where one of the characters reads from a list that's been printed out on this sort of laser printer type thing (laughs) off to the side of the stage. And it is a list of? The list is the list of all the names of African-Americans that have been killed by police. And it's, it's a hundred and some odd names, is it not? Yes. Yes. Uh, And it's, and it's every single name, the ones, you know, the ones we don't know, the ones we, and it goes back to, I believe into the seventies actually. Mm. Mm. Um, I think it's the earliest name on that, uh, on that list. And it goes all the way up until like today. So it's, and it's every single name. It's immensely powerful. But like you're saying, you had to bring that to life rather than just standing there reading off names. You had to Mm -hmm. do something with it physically to make it more accessible. Is that yeah? To make it more accessible to, to make you, to make you feel it, to hit home, because you more. feel like you not only feel it emotionally, physically, you feel because uh-huh. the room vibrates, uh-huh. and it's also and it was also a thing for those performers too. It's a way to help them deal because they have to read that list and hear that list every single day, mm-hmm. and that is to hear it once and just to hear it in rehearsals is already it it, it hurts, you know, mm-hmm. it physically hurts and so it is another way for me to give them this this opportunity to pretty much exercise that angst and that hurt in the moment in real time as they have to hear this list it's part to have us as an audience feel it and accept that information in a in a different way and on multiple platforms Mm -hmm. but it's also a way for the actors to decompress so that they don't have to hold on to that while they're doing it yeah Yeah. cool there are so many different styles of movement going on in this piece that we talked about Uh, one one that i'm particularly interested in did you watch as a child or even while you were doing this project or even while you're doing other projects did you watch a lot of silent pictures of the great pantomime artists of the past the harold lloyd uh, buster keaton charlie chaplin because much of your movement uh, especially in kill move paradise has sort of a slapstick comic pantomime <laughs> element going on to Keystone it there's cops. A, a, in a weird kind of way there's one long scene where i think it's is it kai ely who's doing these <laughs> contortions on on the ramp on of the, the ramp. set 
And it's it's uh, hilarious. Uh, <laughs> and it reminded me so much of the great comedic artists of the silent film era. Is that a style that you've developed or used uh in your work i cannot take credit for that really at all <laughs> that is all kai just a hilarious great performer so that's that's all kai and wardell i call wardell we call each other our theater hubby a theater husband because like <laughs> we just have a synergy the way we work together is almost like seamless but yeah it was just like we i just had a brief conversation with wardell about what these moments are just in general and and then he he offered some movement to them, and then I would go in and judge it. But a lot of that, again, going back to how we want it to be authentic to the performers, the beautiful thing about that cast in general is that we had three three actors that were so brave. They tried anything and everything. They weren't afraid to fail. And so they would we would tell them what the overlying aesthetic or look of, or what a moment was and they would just go for it and we'd be like oh no maybe that's just a bit too much let's <laughs> pull that one back or we'd be like yes go 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 yeah, so, they're pretty fearless yeah up there. they're fearless they are fearless i don't know how they do it what five <laughs> or six times a week yeah it was exhausting watching two it show days too. one time, 90 minutes straight through. Yeah. The actors that you're referring to are Kai Ely, who we've spoken about, Kai A. Ely, Charles Andrew Gardner, and Trent Davis. Um, we also saw a young... And Sebastian. Sebastian Cage. We also saw Cage, Sebastian, Pierre. Yeah. Cage, Kai, and Charles are the three adults. Correct. Yes. Yeah, and then Trent yes. is a, uh, Trent Davis is tiny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who is a fourth character, but we're not going to mention that. Yeah. We can, right. Right. It's like, <laughs> can't give away too much. <laughs> uh, Brian, you have a great background and experience in performance and training. What did you like to pretend when you were a child? And I know you started acting at an early age, but even before 14, 15, 13, what were your favorite things to pretend? Well, you know, I grew up in the age, the true golden age of the music videos, right? And so, like, I grew up watching Jetta Jackson, Michael Jackson, Paul Abdul, like all of these high concept they were all like mini films, these music videos, you know what I mean? And so those were, I would always... And this is how I knew I was naturally a dancer or a choreographer <laughs> is that I would watch those things and I would be able to like mimic the moves that I saw. And I would just be like dancing in front of the TV, doing the moves that I saw on the television. The first thing I ever choreographed was in third grade. <laughs> I taught my class for the black history ceremony. I taught my class the opening sequence to coming to America, <laughs> which is like this big African yeah. dance that happens. Yeah. But I knew it because I loved it so much. Eddie Murphy was like my person because I know I loved comedy. I loved and, and I saw this man that looked like me doing this on such a large scale and playing all of these different characters because I pride myself on being a character actor as well. So Eddie Murphy and Jim Carrey were like the Robin Williams. Those were my like people so I watched anything that they did but yeah that was my first thing choreographing was I learned it from the movie just from doing it and watching it over and over and over again and I taught it to my class so we could <laughs> perform great. it at the black history ceremony how'd it go over <laughs> it was great I yeah. mean standing yeah. ovation um, wow. Frank you directed quite a few shows in your time I have yeah how did you uh, relate with and um, collaborate with your choreographers I assume that you would engage a choreographer for the musical 
articles I that did. you did. Yeah, once I started with one, kind of like what you were saying, she and I really connected, and I always insisted on having her. This is when I was at College of DuPage. You know, I have to have Lisa. If not, I'm not doing that show. Mm. Because she knew, how to do, she knew how to work with people who hadn't danced before, as well as people who were good. And I think you have to, you don't always That is get, important. Yeah, she really, <laughs> she made the people who were not so good look okay, and then she made the people who were good look really terrific. So I always made sure I, I, I had her with all the musicals I did. Yeah. You mentioned, Brian, that you came to Chicago to be an actor mm-hmm. and possibly director, but uh, acting was your first... Um, That's first love. Sh- your first, That's love, first love, your first choice. Have you been able to do much acting in the last year with these 20-some <laughs> projects of movement and choreography that you've been up to? Or? Yeah, in the la- I've, I've watched the, the scales tip. Acting was on the large scale, and then there were a couple choreography gigs, but then it like started to even out around like 2017 and 2018. It just kept shifting, and then it like now uh, come to now where it's like I have all these choreography gigs and like one acting thing, and it's like no, wait, I was an actor first. What's happening? So I've been learning to like balance that and judge that because, like you were saying before, there is a a higher demand for choreographers, especially and especially now that there that so many more just plays are including movement mm-hmm. or are warning people mm-hmm. because I believe Chicago really leads the industry on how to incorporate these other designers when things need greater attention, like um, intimacy designers and things like that. Because before, you know, a director would just do it. But now we're bringing in intimacy choreographers and designers. And now we're bringing in movement just for the smallest things. You know, it's just about to give everything their equal eyes and attention. What's the strangest thing or the weirdest thing you've ever been asked to choreograph? It was a show where it was about two musicians two brothers they were musicians and their relationship through music but the two actors that were cast weren't musicians and they didn't play those instruments that the play is 80 percent them playing these instruments so they were like lip syncing instruments or yeah, they were finger syncing or whatever see yeah that's where i came in uh-huh. is it possible for we want the movement to be the music that they would be playing Wait, what? Yeah. And they're like, well, these two actors, what? they don't play these instruments, but we want the script dictates that they talk to each other through music, they communicate through music. So since neither of them play these instruments and they won't be playing these live, we want the movement to be how they communicate with each other. And I was like, okay, sure, great, cool, let's play, let's let's try it. But now were they, did they have the, <laughs> were they faking with the instruments or were they sort of abstractly moving? They were abstractly moving. Like they were playing a They were playing and then they would grow out, they would go away from the instrument and then the music would just be their movement Okay. and how they communicate. So for that particular, I was a movement consultant. I wasn't the choreographer because I only went in to give them a vocabulary of what that exchange could look like and be. And then a lot of what they created was from them. Brian, this might be a delicate question, but I think it's something that you refer to in a Facebook post. Do you find that choreographers and or especially kind of movement directors for non-musicals really get the credit they deserve or are they a bit undervalued in the Chicago theater community? It's kind of like we have to change the way we look at things and the way we talk about theater because a lot more plays now call for movement and movement consultants and movement directors or designers that we're not used to having that in our canon of speech. 
of talking about movement choreographers when it comes to a play. Musicals, of course, there's always a director and a choreographer. Sometimes they're the same person, but mostly it's director, choreographer. So you always have to talk about that in musicals. But in plays, that's not that's not the norm right. or it hasn't been the norm, which I would argue is almost becoming the norm because there's yeah. so many plays that include and so many things that people have watched. They might even recognize that there was a movement person on that show that did these little pockets of uh, exploration or movement or design. And, and people so, think of choreography as dance. Exactly. And you're not exactly. talking dance. We're okay. not talking dance. We're talking literally movement and, and physical relationships mm-hmm. with each other. And so that often gets overlooked when it comes to plays because it's just not what your brain automatically goes to you just think oh director and then that's it yeah, because the, it's like, like, and the director did all of that yeah and the director know? did all of Liar. that and it's yeah. like oh, no 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 <laughs> um, and then you open the program and you see all the credits for an intimacy director or mm-hmm. supervisor or consultant or, or fight director or exactly violence director right because there was like a time that. where it was all done by the director sure but that's not where we are a smart director will get someone better than he or she is to exactly. do it exactly Exactly. That was always my theory. Like, well, they're better than me. So, like, of course I want them to do it. Right. Why would I lean on this yeah. person's expertise? Correct. So, yeah, I do feel like it, it, it often gets overlooked. And, and I think it's only be, because of that reason, because it just it hasn't been a norm. And it, it's not what we usually think about when we look go to plays and mm. think about plays. I hear you're doing Priscilla next. Yes. Are you excited about Priscilla, that? Queen of the Desert. Desert. Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. <laughs> yes. What's that going to be like? It's uh, definitely a challenge because of the, they're doing it in their smaller space, in the uh, Venus Cabaret space, and with a show that's already larger than life. Right, right. <laughs> Just in general, to have to compress it all the way down to be in this space has been challenging. <laughs> wait, 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 it's it's not on the main stage. It's at not the on the main stage. No, it's what? In the, it's in the Venus Cabaret space. Oh my word! Yeah. So I mean, it, to a point, it does serve the show in a lot of ways because a lot of the acts that are happen happen in the show are at clubs and it one gives you that club effect but also that's a lot of what drag queens have to deal with <laughs> like chicago is a huge drag city there's so many like international stars that have come out of chicago and they're always talking about oh i had this gig at roscoe's or i had this gig at sidetrack and you think oh these must be these big huge clubs but you actually go to these places and they're like the size of this room how did these these drag queens, these stars get this, this light, this calling, this following in a room the size of my living room. Yeah. Those elements, I think, help. That would work in favor. It yeah. works in yeah. favor of yeah. Priscilla, but they're just, you know, I'm about big arms, twirls, and like, <laughs> and it's like, you can't do big arms because you're going to be slapping a patron in the face. So you have to like, do like little hands, little hands. So, and you got big yeah. hair too. So yeah. Right. And the head pieces the and the costumes yeah. and like, the, that's the room. You know? bus. So, There's a bus. There's there. a bus. Exactly. So. Yeah. What do you do about the bus? Well, it's um, there. You just got to yeah. be clever about it, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Brian, what's your most memorable role? There, yeah, there are two. There are two uh, answers to that. One was actor six is kind of like what I was referred to <laughs> as, but it was in All Our Tragic with the Hypocrites in 2016. That was a 12-hour a play festival. It and was yeah, all the Greek tragedies. It was all the Greek tragedies lined in up one, back to back. Lined up because what Sean Graney, the director and writer, he took all of the Greek tragedies and 
all their timelines and all the, and they're all all their overlapping and put them all in one show yeah, and put them all in chronological yeah. order. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah. you know characters often appear in uh-huh. some of the other stories, and so he put them all together in in chronological order and just travel through all of the tragedies in one. Did the same actors play if you're playing crayon or whatever? Yep. You played it in every every part. Exactly. So that I was Jason Argonautica. I was Achilles and I was Ion or Haman, who was the the son of Jason and Medea. Or the son of Medea. It was that one, the just the epicness of the show. Wow. And doing that show, doing a twelve hour show. So that show and also Insurrection was Insurrection Holding History was the first, not only the first project Wardell and I worked on, I was in it and I did the movement for it and he was the director. That show was very close to me. It was the first time I played a a gay person, a a queer person of color on stage that was authentic and not a gimmick. Mm. Um, And it was the first time I had a same sex romantic interest on stage. And it was the first time I played a version of myself. Wardell brought that show to me like a year before we even worked on a producer. He was like, I'm going to direct this show and you're going to be Ron. And I read it. I was like, yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. That's me. And, he, mm-hmm. and so it was just such a beautiful story. Just the, the story and the history and the ancestry and everything about that. And, and it happened at a very, just, the universe is really strange in a lot of ways, but it was a show that I wish my mother could have seen because of how authentically it was me. And I thought it was some of my most powerful work as an actor that I've done. This was 2018 and my mother passed that year as well. Um, I did the show. And then right after that show, uh, my mother passed for that show. I have a, this beautiful relationship with my grandfather who basically takes me back in time to when he was a, he was young. And, but at the end of the play, my grandfather dies in my arms and then I have this whole moment with him. So I had to do that show again mm-hmm. after my mom passed at Theater on the Lake. I've always used art as my own vessel to like deal and to be therapy for me. And that just took it to an exponentially another level to, to do that. Because I wasn't, I wasn't there when my mom passed either. Um, I was here in Chicago and, and she was in Detroit when it all happened. And so to have that moment on stage and everyone in this cast were like, they're like close friends. That was the beautiful thing about the cast too, is that the, we were already friends before the show. So it was like, let's put on a show guys. Like yeah. all of us yeah. doing it. So it was Wardell and Sidney Charles and Anna Desvardas, Ayanna Bakari, Shariba Rivers, like all of these people, Nathaniel Andrew, that we were already close and already a family. So to do, to do that show again with those circumstances, circumstances, but be surrounded by family, it was the only way I could have done that show mm-hmm. again. That show will always be special to me. I know that you didn't mention this is one of your most memorable roles, but it's one of my <laughs> most memorable theater experiences of the last wow. year or so. I talked about it at the top of the show. You did a show called The Total Bent mm-hmm. with uh, Robert Cornelius and... Gilbert Domley. Gilbert Domley. <sighs> What a, Michael what a turn, talent turn, yeah. that is. Ugh. Not only were you in oh it, goodness. but you choreographed it. Yes. This was at the Den Theater in a space, I would say a challenging space. Very. Uh, a big, long rectangle <laughs> of a strip of stage not much wider than this hallway right here. Uh-huh. And you did some amazing choreography. Thank uh, you. And, yeah. uh, and, and a 
brilliant performance. You <laughs> were all you. just terrific. <laughs> How was that show to work on? And is it possible that we could expect to see another mounting of that production somewhere down the road? I know it'd be <laughs> difficult to get all of those people back together, right. getting the band back together. It, it, literally yeah. the band back it together. Would be, it would be tough. I've been very, very, very blessed and very lucky on the shows that I've been able to work on. I can only count maybe one or two shows that I like don't put on my resume anymore that that were not like great experiences. But overall, they've been really great. And that was definitely one of my top shows because, again, we were all friends before that. We were already family before that. And so to work on this show with those people, it was one of those things where every rehearsals were so easy. It, it was mm. easy because we knew each other and we knew... We knew each other's energy. We knew each other's vibe. We knew each other's jokes. And so, like, when though it was just, it was just like back and forth. It was just pop, 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 firecracker off of each other, which was great. And for the choreography for that show, it always baffles me when I hear responses about the choreography to that show. And I'm like, really? That show? Because the way that choreography went in that show, because basically it was just me and Michael Turrentine doing right. all the choreography because right. we were the backup dancers and then there were other elements where other people joined in. And so while rehearsals would happen, I'd just be like, when we weren't focusing on Amy and Andrew, which are our characters, when we weren't fo- focusing on them, I'd be like, Michael, let's go in the hallway real quick. And then he'd come out in the hallway, I was like, okay, let's look at this. So let's just do this and then like, look at this and then try to do this and then, how does that look? Okay, cool, cool, cool. Let's do this. And like, that's literally how I choreographed the show. It was like, <laughs> it was like, off to, it was no like big, huge aesthetic because also I grew up, I'm from Detroit. I grew up in Motown. Like, I know. Mm-hmm. You know, backup. I, I know backup. Yeah. I know the Temptations <laughs> and the Five Heartbeat. Like, I, that's in my blood. So, mm-hmm. and when Lil first, at, Lilian asked, first asked me to do it, I was like, yeah, got it, done. I was like, it's already choreographed. <laughs> Lilian Brown, the director. Yeah, Lilian yeah. Brown, another yeah. long-standing collaborator of mine, who's actually been a part of, she's been the director of, like, my most, I think, my best works as well as like my favorite shows mm. with Marie Christine, The Wiz, Color Purple, mm. absolutely. So yeah, when it came to that show, it was it was it just all just fits. As far as getting everybody back together, I don't know. Everybody's so big time now. It's like they are. it's yeah. like Robert, Gilbert, Michael, myself, like all of us have just I mean, we're in such a beautiful part of our careers that because they actually wanted to do it at Theater on the Lake. They asked, they were, we were wow. like, uh, no, that's not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> like, no. And how many, no, we're our, everybody's already booked. What are you talking about? So it would, it would take the, it will take the stars to align again for yeah, that to happen. For sure, sure. Um, but it was definitely an amazing experience. Well, I hope great. the stars do align. Yeah. At some point. That would be <laughs> yeah. fantastic. Well, Booth One is focused on giving the Chicago theater community a forum for telling their stories and sharing their passions. In fact, we are one of the very few outlets, Frank, for that platform and if you'd like to support booth one and bringing you the best in lively conversation about the arts and popular culture and amazing guests like brian arzell <laughs> you can go to our website at booth-one.com that's booth-one.com and click on the donate button it's easy it's quick and it's tax deductible under our mm-hmm. 501c3 status as a nonprofit entity any and all contributions would be greatly appreciated brian we end our podcasts each week with a segment we call the kiss of death oh. this is a celebration uh-uh. of someone that we've just lost a celebration of their life and their career. They could be famous, not so famous. They could be in show business or not show business. Mm -hmm. I think this one might be very interesting for you. It goes back to uh, starting 
one's performance career at a very young age and also harkens back to my question about the the great comedians of the silent era. And this is also an homage to my friend Roscoe, Uh who was a former uh, co-host on the program. Mm -hmm. This is Diana Sarah Carey. Do you know who Diana Sarah Carey is? I don't, (laughs) no. We've talked about her on the program before. During her brief career as a silent film star known as Baby Peggy. Oh, okay. (laughs) She came perilously close to death time and time again. The child actor, a toddler when she debuted in 1921, she was two, Mm. two years old. She was thrown from a speeding pickup truck, narrowly escaped a horse trampling and survived near drownings and incineration, all in the pursuit of making movies in an era with minimal supervision of child welfare. Oh Oh, my goodness. Born Peggy Jane Montgomery, she became one of the country's youngest self-made millionaires by age four. Oh, had me beat. Yeah, yeah, you were like six. Four more. Yeah, yeah, five and a half. Then she suffered a devastating reversal of fortune and fame in her adolescence. Mrs. Carey was among the last living Hollywood stars of the silent era. She was born in 1918 in San Diego. Her family soon settled in Los Angeles. Her father was a cowboy and park ranger and worked as a stunt double for Western star Tom Mix while her mother was a movie extra. Baby Peggy was 19 months old when her mother brought her to Century Studios where a director noticed her sitting on a stool and paired her with the animal star Brownie the Wonder Dog. (laughs) There's a movie or a play in this for sure. Brownie the Wonder Dog. They made a number of shorts together quite popular as you can imagine she made over a dozen shorts over the next several years many of which have been unfortunately lost to deterioration Mm. or just time those that survive show a precocious toddler with a gift for physical comedy and (laughs) mimicry a still from the short peg of the movies for instance this is from 1923 shows her in a slinky dress and holding a cigarette in an imitation of exotic actress pola negri in other comedies she parodied film stars rudolph valentino and mary pickford in one of her films she plays an old grandfather with a beard (laughs) she's 19 months old Uh, yeah two or three years old in 1923 she was signed by universal where she commanded this is unbelievable for 1923 a ten thousand dollar a week salary for feature-length films to be taken seriously studio chief carl lemley once said a child star should make you cry to that andy cast baby peggy in the darling of new york a tearjerker with treacherous stunt work about an immigrant family that survives a tenement fire a typical plot line for that time for the film's climax the set was doused with kerosene and set ablaze including by accident a door that was to serve as baby peggy's escape route she improvised by breaking a window and clawing her way out across a burning windowsill that scene is all that remains of the film today by age five she had made more than 150 pictures wow Sounds like your last year. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Brian. Baby Brian. <laughs> Baby Brian. <laughs> 
<laughs> a baby Peggy lent her name to images on sweaters, jewelry, handbags, and dolls. In 1923, her father secured her a $1.5 million a year contract wow. with independent producer Saul Lesser. When her father bickered with Lesser over her salary, the movie mogul blackballed the family. For the next four years, baby Peggy and her parents could find work only in vaudeville, then in its waning days before the rise of sound films. When the grueling travel proved too much, her father made a down payment on a Wyoming dude ranch. But his mismanagement, coupled with the 1929 stock market crash, plunged the family into poverty. Baby Peggy soon learned that she had been the family breadwinner. Of course, <laughs> how would she know? I mean, she yeah. was just a child. Yeah. And, and they, they ruined it. She was yeah. bringing in all the money. Exactly. Kill the golden goose. And that members of the family had squandered her earnings. They had a house in Beverly Hills before I was three, she told the LA Times. Then we had a house in Laurel Canyon. Then we had a Duesenberg car that was worth 30000 I was making a lot of money. My films were circulated all over the globe, but they thought Hollywood was forever. My parents had no plan for adulthood for my sister and myself. We weren't sent to school. We simply grew up and worked. We had no education at all. In 1932, the story gets happier. <laughs> <laughs> it must. In 1932, the family pooled its savings to return to Hollywood. Two years later, she enrolled in an acting school where her classmates included Judy Garland. Mm. She left home at 17 with her older sister, Louise, and three years later eloped with a bartender and aspiring actor, George Ayers. She rechristened herself Diana and took her husband's surname in an attempt to create a new Hollywood persona, but she could only find work as an extra books and writing gave her a new lease on life in 1954 skipping some years here she started a greeting card company and later in the 60s ran a bookstore at the university of california in san diego in 1975 she wrote a book about her father's world of silent film stunt writers called the hollywood posse she followed that three years later with a book called Hollywood's Children, an inside account of the child star era, mm. like Jackie oh, Coogan nice. yeah. and, and the like. Maybe Rosemary. Indeed. In 1996, Mrs. Carey wrote a memoir, Whatever Happened to Baby Peggy, which is a very popular book. She was also featured in a 2012 documentary called Baby Peggy, the Elephant in the Room. Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't think she was fat at all. She was just tiny. Here she is. I have a picture. Here she is holding a bunch of gangsters at bay with a oh, pistol. Wow. That's her. <laughs> After converting to Catholicism, she took a middle name, Sarah, in honor of the canonized Spanish missionary, Junipero Sarah. Her second husband, artist Robert Carey, whom she married in 1954, died in 2003. In her final decades, Mrs. Carey belonged to a an organization called A Minor Consideration, a nonprofit advocacy group for child performers. Speaking at film screenings, she met aspiring stage parents who often missed the point of her talks. I tell them, I have yet to find a two-year-old who can find a studio door without help from a parent. <laughs> I think that that's just way too young. And she was absolutely mm. right. Diana Sarah Carey, silent film star Baby Peggy, who often cheated death on the set, 
was 101. Wow. wow. I remember talking about her when she had her 100th birthday with Roscoe on this program. And, she should have uh, saved her money. She had a long way to go. Don't you think? <laughs> yeah, but wow. I think she had a fine later career, and yeah, she was she often the guest of honor at many silent film gatherings of, mm-hmm. of fans. Wow. An amazing career and uh, an amazing story. Her yeah. parents yeah. squandered it. Not unusual. Yeah. Squandered it. I was like, there was no way for her to hold on to the money. She didn't even know it existed. She was home <laughs> She was driven to the studios. Wow, such a common story. Which is obviously why she wanted to help them when she got older. That's great. Without question. Well, Breon, it's been a pleasure having you on the program. I hope you enjoyed yourself. Absolutely. Thank Uh, you. Great to hear all about your past, your experiences, your background, what's coming up, and just your whole philosophy about stage movement and the theater in general mm-hmm. um you're you. you're a remarkable uh, uh artist and a remarkable human being it's great to have you here thank mm-hmm. you so much visit booth-one.com for prior episodes and more information about our program for booth one and brian arzell this is gary zabinski and frank taranjo saying so long and keep listening <laughs>